Well, it's that time that we now come to the preaching of God's word. And so I invite you to take God's word and open to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. Today, we will embark on an exposition of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Today, we're going to be in verses one to seven. And I want to begin by reading this portion of scripture. Romans chapter one, beginning in verse one. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul opens this epistle, he launches with the exaltation of the gospel. He declares the source of the gospel, that it is the very gospel of God. He declares the historicity of the gospel, that it's rooted in the prophetic promise of the Old Testament. He declares the cornerstone of the gospel, that it concerns God's son, who through the incarnation is the son of David, and who through the resurrection is both Lord and Christ. He even declares the aim of the gospel, that it's to bring about the obedience of faith in the whole world to the honor and glory of Christ. And he declares the effects of the gospel, that it results in grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins this epistle by exalting the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then devotes nearly all of the first four chapters to the content of its message. And we might ask, why? Why is it that Paul begins this epistle in this way? And to answer that question, we need to get a sense of the historical setting of this epistle. For one... The church at Rome lacked any apostolic influence. It was likely birthed by believing Jews from Rome who were present on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And so as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul sensed the responsibility for the church at Rome. For two, the church at Rome was predominantly Gentile. And there's reason to believe that an attitude of arrogance toward the Jews had developed among them, Romans eleven eighteen, And so Paul wants them to understand that the message of the gospel is firmly anchored in the Old Testament. And for three, among the Jews, Paul was rumored to be both anti-law and anti-Jewish. And it's more than likely that rumor had made its way into Rome. And so Paul sets the record straight by refuting these false claims. 
and holding out the integrity of his gospel. In addition to that, Paul had missionary aspirations to get to Spain where the gospel had not yet been preached. And on his way, he wanted to pass through Rome, that the Roman church would help him on his way to Spain and assist him in his missionary endeavors in that land. And so this epistle expresses that intention and initiates the relationship with them. In fact, Paul had often planned to visit Rome, but had been prevented. He says as much in verse 13. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. Then in verse 15, he says, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul wanted to get to Rome. He wanted to minister to them, but had been prevented from doing so. And the next best thing was to pen this epistle to write the longest and most robust treaties that Paul had ever written on the nature of the gospel. And so Paul writes this epistle toward the end of his third missionary journey while stationed for three months in Corinth. From there, he intended to and did visit the church in Jerusalem to deliver a monetary gift that he's gathered from among the Gentile churches and that in an effort to strengthen the relationship between believing Jew and believing Gentile. And as he exalts the gospel in the opening seven verses, five glorious features of the gospel emerge. Features that I've already alluded to. We're going to see the source of the gospel. We're going to see the historicity of the gospel. We're going to see the cornerstone of the gospel. We're going to see the objective of the gospel. And we're going to see the effects of the gospel. And as we rehearse these Five features, it will assist us in apprehending our position and place in this gospel and the saving purposes of God in our lives. And so if you're taking notes, jot this down, the source of the gospel, the source of the gospel. And this comes out as Paul asserts that which characterizes him with respect to his mission. And there are three characteristics. Notice the first at the beginning of verse one. It says there in verse one, Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus. More literally, this is Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. The underlying Greek word is doulos, which means slave. And that Paul identifies himself as a slave of Christ is patterned after the language of the Old Testament and those who are identified as servants of Yahweh. Paul sees himself as being in the line of the rich heritage of the prophets of old. And that Paul is a slave of Christ conveys a number of things. It conveys his total devotion. He's at the complete disposal of the Lord Jesus Christ to be used as Christ sees fit, where Christ has total ownership over his life, but not just total devotion. It also conveys great honor. Paul's master is none other than Christ Jesus himself. And there is no greater honor than to be a slave of Jesus Christ. 
but not just honor. It also conveys humility. The kind of humility perfectly embodied in Christ himself, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2.8. And so at the outset, Paul distinguishes himself as a slave of Christ, and yet not just a slave. He is also an apostle. Next part of verse one says they're called as an apostle. And that Paul was called indicates that he was effectually called. Not just in salvation, but also in his apostleship. Paul had been divinely and irresistibly summoned to his office as an apostle. In fact, Paul's salvation and apostleship are so closely linked that it's almost impossible to separate them. Elsewhere, he indicates that God had set him apart even from his mother's womb and called him through his grace to reveal his son in preaching him among the Gentiles, Galatians 1, 15 and 16. This was Paul's destiny that God had set him apart called as an apostle to minister the gospel of God. And Paul is what we might call a capital A apostle. And that's because he was not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, Galatians 1.1. And so Paul belonged to a select group. There was the 12 and there was Paul. And Paul was the one who was the apostle to the Gentiles, entrusted with the message of the gospel to reach the nations for Christ. And this is further accentuated in the next characteristic. Next part of verse one, where it says, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul was a slave of Christ, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The word rendered set apart means to select one person out of a group for a purpose. It can also be rendered appoint. So Paul was set apart or appointed for the purpose of the gospel. His entire life was dedicated to both the message and the ministry of the gospel. He was to obey the message of the gospel. He was to guard and protect the message of the gospel. And he was to proclaim the message of the gospel. And it's here that we see the source of the gospel because that the gospel is the gospel of God doesn't merely mean that the gospel is about God, but rather that it is that God is its source. The gospel is the good news of God's saving intervention in and through his son. And that God is the source of the gospel indicates that he is the author and architect of the gospel that he is the divine designer of the gospel. This is his mastermind. This is his plan of redemption. It is God the Father who commissioned his son into the world to bring about the restoration of all things through the redemption of his people and the demonstration of his righteousness as we'll see in Romans 3. And so again, make no mistake, the plan of redemption is God's plan of redemption. This gospel originates with God. And the word gospel means good news. And this is 
the greatest news the world has ever heard, that you can be reconciled to God through his son and receive the forgiveness of sins, a perfect record of righteousness, eternal life, the hope of heaven, and that you can actually become an heir of God and fellow heir with Christ, where all that Christ has inherited through his life, death, and resurrection is yours in Christ. All you must do is turn from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that and you will be saved for the word of God says, Romans 10, 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that God is the source of this redemptive plan, renders it an infallibly efficacious enterprise. It cannot fail. His purpose will be established and he will accomplish all his good pleasure, Isaiah 46.10. That's the source of the gospel. Now, second, the historicity of the gospel. The historicity of the gospel. Pick it up at the end of verse one. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel isn't plan B in God's redemptive plan. This is plan A. This is the plan that God put in place from the very beginning. It was long beforehand announced through God's prophets in the Old Testament. It was first announced in Genesis 3.15 and the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. It was later announced to Abraham and the singular seed who would mediate the blessing of Abraham to the nations. It was pictured in the Passover lamb and the sparing of the firstborn son of each Israelite family. It was pictured in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. It was anticipated in 2 Samuel 7 and the promised son of David who would have to conquer the grave to establish an everlasting kingdom. It was prophesied in Psalm 16 in God's holy one, not undergoing decay. It was depicted in Psalm 22, in the righteous sufferer and the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was even anticipated in Psalm 110 and the heavenly reign of the Davidic king that demanded the resurrection. It was proclaimed in Isaiah 53 and the depiction of the suffering servant who was pierced through for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. In fact, the entire Old Testament, taken as a single unified witness, testifies to the first coming of Christ that he would lay down his life as an atonement for sin. And this is why Jesus could chide his disciples on the, on the road to Emmaus, saying, oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. In fact, later in Luke 24, speaking to the 11, he says this, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
This is what God promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. But here's the thing. We can go even a step further than that. Because not only was the gospel promised long ago in the Old Testament, but we know from Scripture it was divinely decreed in eternity past that God shows us in Christ before the foundation of the world and that in love he predestined us to adoption as sons all according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in Christ the beloved Paul records that in Ephesians 1 4 through 6 in fact even in the context of this epistle Paul will outline the eternality of God's redemptive plan in Romans 8, 29 and 30, that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom God predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. The message of the gospel not only finds its source in God and is not only rooted in history, but is a a plan that was conceived in eternity past in the secret council of the Trinity. And so it's no wonder that Paul will go on to herald the eternal security of the believer when he will declare that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, Romans 8, 39. The unbreakable golden chain of redemption reaches all the way back into eternity past and all the way into eternity future. Nevertheless, Paul's point is this, that the saving work of God in Christ finds its roots in the Old Testament. And so as believing Gentiles, it's critically important that we appreciate the Old Testament roots of the gospel. Because as we'll see later in this epistle, its Old Testament roots have implications for future Israel. So that though from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for our sake. From the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, Romans eleven twenty eight ruling out any and all arrogance toward them. That's the historicity of the gospel. Now third, the cornerstone of the gospel. The cornerstone of the gospel. And the cornerstone of the gospel is God's son. And in verses three and four, the son is designated in four ways, progressing from his pre-existence as God the son to his incarnation as the Davidic descendant to his designation as the Messiah King through his resurrection and finally to his exaltation as Lord. And so in these four designations, the first and last declare his deity and the second and third designate his humanity as the promised Messiah. And so notice his designation as God, the son. Beginning beginning of verse three, it says there, concerning his son. 
The gospel of God is that which is concerning God's son. Now in the next designation, Paul will identify God's son as having been born. So when Paul indicates that the gospel of God concerns his son, it implies the son's preexistence. That the son existed prior to his birth. And we know that to be true. That in the beginning was the word. And that the word was with God. And the word was God, John 1.1. 1, 1. A statement that heralds the eternality of the son in the beginning was the word, that the word was already in existence before the beginning even began, that the son is an eternally distinct person from the father. I mean, John says, and the word was with God. So the word is distinct from God. He's eternal, he's distinct. And also, that the Son is co-equal with the Father, co-equally God with the Father. John says there in verse 1 of John 1, and the Word was God. In fact, not only is the Son an eternally distinct person from the Father and co-equally God with Him, but He is also co-creator. John 1, 3, all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And so the son is the very radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, Hebrews 1, 3, through whom the world was made, Hebrews 1, 2, and in whom all things hold together, Colossians 1, 17. The gospel of God, the gospel which finds its source in God is concerning God's Son, who is God the Son, and not just God the Son. He is also Son of David. Next part of verse 3. It says, Who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. And this designation corresponds with his incarnation. A designation that parallels John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But here the emphasis is on his Davidic lineage. That God the Son, though existing before the world began, came into the world born a descendant of David. Now why would that be? Why would it be so critical that Paul identify God the Son, as having been born a descendant of David, according to the flesh? Because the gospel of God is anchored in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament promised a Davidic king, a son of David, who would fulfill the Davidic covenant and would establish an everlasting kingdom. And there's a contrast between this designation and the next. This one here in verse 3 is according to the flesh. And the next one in verse 4 is according to the spirit of holiness. And the contrast here is between the son's humiliation in the incarnation and his exaltation in his resurrection and ascension. That's the contrast. That Jesus came into the world 
a descendant of David according to human flesh, but that according to the spirit through the resurrection, we're going to see that he was designated the Messiah King. And so according to the flesh here in verse three conveys the neutral notions of human weakness and frailty. According to the flesh, God the Son was born a descendant of David and that qualifies him as Messiah, the Christ. And it's in this next designation that we see him as the powerful Messiah King. Look at verse four. It says, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. And at first glance, you might be inclined to read this as though the resurrection served to vindicate that Jesus is the son of God, where the son of God would designate him in his deity as God, the son. And yet in this particular instance, the designation son of God is actually messianic in nature. So that by the resurrection from the dead, God, the son who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh is actually declared the powerful messianic king, according to the spirit. In fact, we find this very reality expressed elsewhere in Psalm 2, 7, which is an intensely messianic Psalm and says this, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. And we're going to see here an intra-Trinitarian discussion between the Father and the Son. He says this, he said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And Paul connects the fulfillment of that statement with the resurrection of Christ. In Acts 13, 32 and following, listen, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so it's by the resurrection of the dead in accordance with the work of the spirit that God the son is declared the son of God with power. Where in this instance, the son of God designates him as the promised messianic king who now possesses all power, authority, and sovereignty as he rules and reigns from the father's throne as the Christ, the God man. And in accord with Psalm 110, he will rule and reign from the father's throne in heaven until that time when his enemies are made a footstool for his feet in accord with his second coming at which time he will rule and reign from and over the whole earth when he will bring about the fulfillment and restoration of all things. Bringing us to the final designation that he is Lord. He is Lord. Look at the end of verse four. Jesus Christ, our Lord. A designation that in light of the context, is incredibly fitting that having been obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that through his resurrection and ascension, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? And so it's no wonder that Paul will go on to say that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, imputed righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And so Paul designates God's son in four distinct ways. He is God the son. He is the son of David. He is the resurrected messianic king who rules and reigns in power. And he is the Lord. And that makes him the cornerstone of the gospel. Now, fourth, the objective of the gospel. The objective of the gospel. And this comes out in verse five. It says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Paul received unmerited favor, the unmerited favor of his apostleship through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul was an apostle. He was called effectually to that office and that calling came to him through Christ. And Paul viewed this as a gracious gift. A a gracious gift given to him. And he expresses the objective of this gift, of his apostleship in the next part of verse five, where he says this, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. So the objective of the gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith. That is the goal, the aim, the objective of the gospel where faith and obedience are inseparable realities. The call of the gospel is a call to submit to the lordship of Christ, which is both a submission that requires faith and is a submission that obeys the gospel. A saving response to the gospel demands both, both faith and obedience. And yet the obedience of faith only begins there. It doesn't end there. It only begins because it's through that initial response to the gospel that we then enter into this life of living under the lordship of Christ, having been enabled and transformed to respond to his gospel. And so the obedience of faith is that which characterizes all those who have been effectually called to new life in Christ where the obedience of faith is essentially one and the same as what it means to walk in newness of life. And so this doesn't just include initial salvation. This includes sanctification, conformity to Christ, personal holiness and obedience. That's the objective of the gospel, both salvation and sanctification. And yet the thing that motivated Paul, as much as he understood His objective was the glory of Christ. And this comes out in the next part of verse five, where it says, for his name's sake. The obedience of faith among all the Gentiles is for the honor and glory of Christ. It's for his name's sake. 
Which means that Christ is glorified through the salvation and sanctification of sinners. As his saving power is on full display. And then Paul says this in verse six, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Paul identified the church at Rome as having been effectually called through faith in Christ, to Christ and to the obedience of faith. That through the effectual call, they now belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think about the progress and success of the gospel from what was probably about 57 AD when Paul penned this epistle all the way to where we are now in 2023, we can see that we are the byproduct of the gospel going forth with power throughout the centuries. And so I think in the same way, that Paul addresses the church in Rome as, having, as being among the called of Jesus Christ. I think the same applies here at Grace Life Church. This glorious gospel that finds its source in God and is historically rooted in the Old Testament, being centered on the person and work of Christ, has produced in Grace Life Church the obedience of faith. The very objective of the gospel, where you have been effectually called to new life in Christ, where you now belong to Jesus Christ, where you have been imputed with his righteousness and clothed in his righteousness, where you have died with Christ and have been raised unto newness of life, where you are now indwelt by the spirit of God and have been set free from sin and are now a slave of righteousness. The objective of the gospel has come to us here at Grace Life Church and is operative, whereby Christ is being glorified through our salvation and sanctification. The apostle Peter expresses this reality of the obedience of faith like this. He says, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit." And here it is, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. The objective of us being delivered from our sin and being reconciled to God is that we would manifest the obedience of faith. Where we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so if you are here and are in Christ, then I exhort you to live, Christian, to walk in newness of life, to walk in a manner worthy of God and worthy of Christ and worthy of the gospel, to set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the spirit, to be filled with the spirit, to walk by the spirit, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind and to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, that you would bear fruit in all practical righteousness and all for the sake of his name. Live. Live out your newness of life in the gospel. That is the very objective of the gospel. 
And the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. Now, fifth and finally, the effects of the gospel. The effects of the gospel. And we'll identify four effects in this final verse and just touch on them briefly, given that Paul will expand on them throughout this epistle. Notice verse seven. It says there, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, through the effectual call, the gospel renders you beloved of God. Now, why would that be? Why would you be beloved of God through the gospel? Because Christ is the beloved. And in the gospel, you have union with Christ. You are in Christ. And therefore, because Christ is beloved and you being in him, you too are beloved. Through the effectual call, the gospel renders you beloved of God. Notice also, it says there, called as saints. Through the effectual call, the gospel grants you the status of a saint. The status of saint is not reserved for some spiritual elite. Every member of the body of Christ, everyone who has believed on Christ and been saved is, by the authority of the word of God, a saint. Set apart from sin and set apart to God. And then Paul, as he often does, says this to the church at Rome, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the effectual call, the gospel grants you salvation by grace apart from any works of the law. In the gospel and salvation, you have a gracious standing before God where you live in grace A grace that has not only saved you, but a grace that is also sanctifying you, where you have even the enabling grace of God that is towards you through the work of the Spirit to live the life that God has called you to live. And so this is the unmerited favor of God that every Christian has in Christ. And not just grace but even peace from God and from Christ. So that through the effectual call, the gospel grants you objective peace with God, that though you came into this world at enmity with God, at war with him, where there was hostility between you and God, where the wrath of God abided upon you, now in Christ, through the gospel, that has been taken away. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And therefore you have peace with God. A peace that is settled. A peace that is eternal. A peace that is rooted in the finished work of Christ upon the cross. In fact, Paul will go on to say this in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, having been justified, having been declared righteous through faith in Christ and imputed with the righteousness of Christ, we have peace with God. I mean, that is phenomenal. Beloved of God, 
called as saints, where the grace of God and the peace of God are ours. This is a phenomenal gospel. This is a glorious gospel. The only question is whether or not you have believed this gospel. Have you believed the gospel of God? Have you believed the father in his commissioning of his own son into the world to take upon himself human flesh, to be a descendant of David, to be the promised Messiah who ultimately came and proclaimed the truth and fulfilled the law and then ultimately went to the cross and was crucified where he was treated as though he were a criminal and a a blasphemer. And yet on that cross, though he had suffered immense pain physically, immense suffering, it was on that cross that he bore the wrath of God, where the father made an atonement for sin by pouring out his righteous wrath and indignation for sin upon his own son, treating his own son as if he had committed the sins of all who would ever believe on his name. And Christ received that in full and then died upon that cross, giving up his last breath, went into the grave, rose on the third day, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is both Lord and Christ, and awaiting that time when he will come in judgment, and now the gates of heaven are wide open for you to believe on him, and be reconciled to him, and settle out of court with him. Have you believed this gospel? Have you been reconciled to this Christ, to this God? Why would you refuse and reject him? This is a glorious gospel. It finds its source in God. God is the source of the gospel. It is rooted in history, in the prophets of the Old Testament, reaching even all the way back into eternity past. The cornerstone of the gospel is Christ, and he is a marvelous savior. He is a wonderful savior. And the objective of the gospel is that we would walk in newness of life, having freedom from sin, to walk in righteousness and obedience, to reflect even the the image of God in our lives, to have that image be renewed in Christ. And it yields the glorious effects of being beloved of God, being called as a saint, having the grace of God, and even having peace with God. And so how could you refuse this gospel? You would be an utter fool to reject this gospel and then enter into eternal judgment for your sin. And so believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lay hold of him by faith this day. Be reconciled to God through him and receive everything that we've described here this day. Paul has just exalted the gospel which he identifies as the gospel of God. And from here, he will go on to declare the gospel and teach the gospel and broaden it in all its doctrinal clarity and glory, even getting into the nature of sanctification and our spiritual growth. And so we have just gotten a wonderful introduction to the epistle to the Romans. And may God continue to bless our study of this epistle and build us up in this most most holy faith. Let's pray together.
Well, Father, we are just so thrilled to come before you and to be given this moment to rehearse this glorious gospel, which is your gospel, which originates with you, where you are the author and architect of this gospel. And Father, we marvel at what is ours in the gospel, for we were ruined sinners, and you have transformed us and are transforming us, molding us ever more into the image of Christ. And we have the hope of heaven. Everything we could ever desire, having been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so, Father, we give you great praise. We thank you for your goodness. And we certainly pray that you would bless our study of this epistle in Jesus' name. Amen.